This podcast is brought to you by Contessa Digital. You're listening to Things They Don't Tell Her. Everything you don't get taught about periods, pregnancy, and postpartum. I'm going to take you on a journey back to sex ed and teach you what really matters. Ladies, it's time you felt empowered in your bodies. I'm your host, Caitlin Pender, founder of Her Women's Health, and I'm sharing tips to optimize your fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum journey. Hello, Caitlin. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. So Caitlin is a women's health physio and you essentially help mamas prepare their pelvic floors for their birth experience, whichever birth experience they desire. And then you also help them with that recovery postnatally, which is super duper important no matter if you've had a elective cesarean or a vaginal birth experience. Absolutely. Amazing. So What I'm really keen to talk to you about today is how the pelvic floor actually affects your birth experience. So I think this topic is so new to a lot of mamas and they're kind of like have probably heard that balancing their pelvic floor is super important. However, they don't really understand why. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah. So I want to talk to, I want to talk about a few things today, but we'll start with how it would impact someone's desire to have a natural birth so working obviously natural birth co and promoting natural birth let's talk mostly about the our understanding now from the research of how the pelvic floor can have an implication for birth and for the onset of labor Mm -hmm. so really interestingly we've had a few more recent studies where we've looked at the impact of the pelvic floor so let's just think about the pelvic floor just to wrap our heads around it because we're often very disconnected from the pelvic floor and it helps to understand kind of the anatomy of it. If we think about the pelvis as a bowl, so imagine like a ramen bowl, quite a deep round bowl. And then if we think about the pelvic floor, it's this horseshoe shape around the ramen bowl. So only kind of one side of it is completely covered with connective tissue and muscle And then at the front, it hooks onto the pubic symphysis, but in between, so if we think about a horseshoe, are all of the exit points for our internal organs. So we've got Mm. the bladder and urethra, the vagina and the rectum and anus. So they're kind of sitting almost like little hoses (laughs) in the middle of this horseshoe bowl-shaped muscle and connective tissue and fascia. So if we think about the pelvic floor anatomy when someone has a really tight overactive pelvic floor or even if they just have genetically they're predisposed to have a smaller we call it a levator hiatus so that basically the the area that this muscle covers Mm. if we think about that space that is created in between it can either be really really tight and then we have a smaller diameter of space where those hoses come out Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or if it is sitting at a a longer length if there's more space if the if the bowl is deeper then we have kind of more width more diameter for those hoses to come down through Mm. you just explained that so well (laughs) 
especially like audio. I'm, I'm like, are you getting a visual? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting, I've got such a visual right now. Yeah, so <laughs> if the pelvic floor is really, really tight and we've got baby's head trying to descend down, let's say baby's head down in the pelvis and ideally, particularly in a first time uh, woman, we want in that last phase of her pregnancy, her he- the baby's head to start to engage. Mm. So from the research, we've had a look at the impact of a tight pelvic floor and fetal head engagement mm. and the impact of whether someone can consciously relax the pelvic floor, mm. contract the pelvic floor, and also how much it moves when they do a valsalva, which is kind of like a forced pushing breath. Mm. And for those who don't know, engagement is when baby's head enters the brim of the pelvis. So the head kind of locks and loads. Yeah. And we really want that for the initiation of the pressure on the cervix. Absolutely. The initiation of labor. So what they found from a few recent studies is that women who had a better ability to relax the pelvic floor, who had a greater levator hiatus, so that diameter of the pelvic floor was larger, Mm. and had a better ability to actually lengthen it with a a valsalva, a pushing breath, Mm. their babes tended to be sitting at a more optimal engagement point, so the station of engagement. Interesting. And if we think about it from a logical perspective, if the muscle is really tight and it runs like it's wrapping this whole bowl, and if it's um, one side of it is the insertion and the other side is the origin. If it's tight, it creates a lift. So mm-hmm. the bowl gets shallower. Yes. So if the bowl is shallower and it's creating this kind of restriction of connective tissue, preventing baby's head from descending down into that bony landmark of the pelvis. Yes. So we can kind of start to comprehend why that might be if the pelvic floor is tight, that baby might be sort of limited to engage and um, it might even obstruct the onset of labor so Mm. from the initiation of labor standpoint we want to understand how can we consciously relax the pelvic floor and a lot of women are starting to understand in the birth world you know if women are, are coming to see me they often know that they're is such thing as an overactive and underactive pelvic floor. They might have heard that it could be underactive or overactive, but they don't necessarily know where they're at themselves. Mm. So the pelvic floor for some women, particularly if they have um, a background of endometriosis, sexual trauma, Mm -hmm. recurrent pain with periods, even a physical trauma like an injury or or a tailbone fracture, Mm. something that's caused those muscles to tighten up, then they are more likely to have an overactive pelvic floor. Mm. Women, after a cesarean section, I find a lot of the time the pelvic floor actually does tighten up. It becomes more overactive and it's because uh, when they do the um, stitching of the cesarean section, they're pulling that pelvic floor fascia up. So if you think about a pair of undies, if you pull up a pair of undies at the front, it does create a little lift. So it kind of shortens that bowl. Wow. Yeah. So if we're thinking about the pelvic floor being in this state of overactivity or underactivity, and underactivity will make more of a difference for recovery. But when it comes to birth, we want 
we want an optimal pelvic floor. We want to have an understanding of how to contract it and how to contract it in a coordinated fashion, mm-hmm. how to contract it quickly if we cough or sneeze, how to contract 100% if we lift something heavy, how to um, maintain a, a baseline contraction if we're going for a run. So we want function of the pelvic floor, but we also want awareness of how to feel it relax. And we want to know if we're in a place that's kind of always holding tension in those muscles. Mm. And as I said, there can be a background of something that might have predisposed a woman to have an overactive pelvic floor. But also we know that the that stress, anxiety and fear can be held in the pelvic floor. So Mm. if we're constantly in a a fight or flight response, Mm -hmm. the pelvic floor tends to tighten up. And if we're constantly breathing into our upper chest and not down into our respiratory diaphragm, then the pelvic floor is not lengthening optimally with the diaphragm. The rest of the fascinating. A quick question I had about the levator hiatus. Hi- yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've the whole mispronounced. The hiatus yes. means hole. Yeah. Yeah. So the hole. The hole in the bowl. How, yeah. Perfect. So, how do you know how big or small that is? Is that something women's health physios can feel? No. So, all of these studies are looking at three and forty ultrasound. Oh, is that something that you guys? No. Would, no, no. So you wouldn't know when you're assessing a mum whether she's got a big or small levator hiatus. So what we can do is we can look at the length of the genital hiatus from the outside. So the length from, if we think about the first hose being the exit point being the urethra, so we mm. can see where the urethra is and then we can measure to the vaginal hose, the perineum, mm-hmm. or past the vaginal hose to like the end of the anus. Mm. So often women's health physios will measure the um, genital hiatus plus the perineal body. Mm. And because if we're thinking about the hole where those hoses are coming out, Mm. that's going to be a good indication of our levator hiatus from a 2D perspective. And then our ability to contract it, we should see, and you can see this very obviously visually, but also I can feel um, with an internal exam is the contraction. So feeling those muscles shorten mm. and then feeling the amount of lengthening that we're getting under underneath my finger. So mm-hmm. from an assessment perspective, we're looking at range of movement. So one way that I explain this is, what I'm feeling for, if you think about a bicep muscle, so imagine if, um, for instance, you put your hand on my wrist mm-hmm. and then I, you were to ask me to contract my bicep muscle, what you'd feel is the full range of motion as I contract. So you'd feel mm. my elbow bend and you'd feel like quite a lot of movement there mm. as I lift and as I lower. But if my bicep was constantly stuck halfway at 90 degrees and Mm. I did the same thing and you said, can you contract? You wouldn't feel much. Mm You feel like there's something, but it's not much. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what I'm feeling for with an internal in preparation for birth is what is a woman's ability to contract and shorten and experience that full range of length Mm. that the pelvic floor should be able to move through. Because if the pelvic floor can't move through that full length to relax or to contract, then that's going to in turn lead to um, potential complications. Mm-hmm. Can I ask quickly? Yeah. Um, so contractions 
being able to contract is really great for pregnancy, as you say, when you cough and sneeze and run and stuff like that. Um, and it obviously being too contracted can be negative towards having a natural birth experience. Is there a risk aside from pregnancy stuff of your pelvic floor being too relaxed for birth? When it comes to birth, it's almost the opposite of what we want. So, Mm. so it's a hard question, but the very thing that we want for birth and what we see creates good outcomes is a really good ability to relax the pelvic floor and lengthen it Mm. and to get more length in that hiatus, that hole, um, and more sort of length in the pelvic floor. And on the other side of birth, we almost want the opposite. We want the muscle to be able to shorten and contract. Mm -hmm. So for when it comes to labor, no, but when it comes to function, yes, because – if we didn't have tone in that resting tone in that muscle, then we'd be experiencing urinary incontinence. Mm. Um, and we know that the mun- the muscle, like any other muscle in the body, it functions when it's at its best length tension relationship. So even if the pelvic floor, say for postpartum, as I said, we want the pelvic floor, in a way we want it shortened and we want it to be able to contract to a really good capacity. But if it was always held in that one spot, the muscle fatigues and then it actually doesn't function optimally. Mm. So if you imagine if the pelvic floor is always switched on, um, it's kind of like if you imagine I gave you a, a two kilo dumbbell and I said, hold this above your head all day and you or just even hold it in your arm all day and contract your bicep and then you've walked around the whole day and your arm's starting to become really fatigued. There's a lot of lactic acid. It's starting to to tire and then eventually you give up and you just put the weight down if I then asked you to do something functionally like lift up a bag of groceries or shopping it would be much much harder Mm. so if we are always holding a bit of tension in the pelvic floor it's not going to function as optimally Mm. when we need it to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so as I said ideally we find this place in the middle um, which is optimal which might look different for different people because everyone's anatomy is slightly different and everyone genetically does have a different size levator. Um, we know that from the research, the you know different um, ethnicities will have mm. a, a sort of different variation of pelvic floor and hiatus size mm. more commonly. So when it comes to birth, what we're thinking about is the baby's head moving down and out through this canal. Mm. well this hose that I use the example of a hose Mm -hmm. but we're thinking about the birth canal we're wanting the pelvic floor to be able to relax and descend so if the pelvic floor can relax properly and also if the pelvic floor can stretch when we do this downward um, pushing breath Mm -hmm. then hopefully baby will get into a more optimal position and if we think about there's obviously so many factors that are weighing in so there's a lot of factors that are going to contribute to baby's position mm. and we can't always control if baby's head's too flexed or if baby's hands up next to its head but what we can control is having awareness of our pelvic floor mm. so if we can control that factor hopefully we're going to optimize the ability for baby to get into a good position and then once the birth process starts as you're moving through labor When it comes to second stage, we have a body of research that's come out that says women who, and they assess this by 
as I said, the, they did 2D and 3D ultrasound. Mm. And they did it in women that were getting induced because they were at the hospital and they were able to, before the induction, take these measurements. Mm. And then what they did is they looked at what outcomes did these women have in terms of the length of second stage of labour, so how long were they pushing for and how many of them needed instrumental assistance or instrumental delivery. And these are all inductions? These are all inductions. Interesting. Okay, cool. In this particular study. And what they found was that there was a a strong negative correlation between women who were – so they found that women who had – a tighter resting pelvic floor Mm -hmm. and women who were not able to lengthen because what they found when they did these ultrasound is when they got women to do a pushing breath of Alsalva, about a third of women were actually contracting the pelvic floor rather than relaxing it at that point. Interesting. And if we're contracting and we're lifting up that bowl, the muscles in that bowl, and baby's head is coming and we're trying to push down, it's like two opposing forces. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they found a group of women that were able to kind of lengthen um, and th- there was various degrees of ability to lengthen. So some women could lengthen a little bit and some women could lengthen a lot. Mm. And when they did the analysis, they found that the women who were co-contracting had much longer second stage of pushing and much higher rates of instrumental assistance. Wow. The women who were able to relax the pelvic floor the most had a shorter second stage. Wow. So that's in that Valsalva breath. Yeah. So when I'm doing an assessment, as I said, first of all, we're feeling for the ability for the pelvic floor to have that good range of movement and work out from a, a really thorough subjective history what that woman's you know, predisposed history of pelvic floor stuff would be mm-hmm. and then work out where she's at on that spectrum and train her using a lot of biofeedback techniques to improve her awareness of when it's contracted and when it's relaxed. And one of my favourite exercises for this is actually using a Pilates ball. Mm. And you can use a football as well, but the Pilates balls, when you kneel on them, If you get it in the right place on your heels, the heels push the air when it's not fully inflated up and they really push up against the vulva and the perineum. Mm -hmm. And that creates this epic kind of um, feedback to the mama's brain of what's happening right on the vulva and the perineum when she does different breath techniques and when she does a contract and relax. Mm. And then with that feedback of the Pilates ball, she can do a contraction, she can do a relaxation and she can feel what's happening. Isn't that amazing? So you can feel when you are physically lowering and relaxing your pelvic floor, that kind of shows through your perineum as well. It's not all internal like your perineum actually does lower. Yeah. So if you like, even if we sit on the chair right now and if Mm -hmm. you're at home and you're listening, just sit on a chair. If you are at home and have like a towel, you can actually even roll up a towel and put it in between your legs and have that to be sitting on it. Yeah. And then if you just focus on... Closing the eyes down so that you've got all of your awareness on that perineal space and that vulva and then contract your pelvic floor and then let it go and just see if you can feel and even you can even place your hand there, um, feel the lift and feel the release, feel it lift, feel the release. 
I think I can feel that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard on these cushions because they're soft. What yeah. we want is something that gives a lot of feedback. And like for us, you know, if, if, if we were practicing and we weren't pregnant, I would say you can just use your, your finger and set your finger vaginally and feel what happens. You'll feel yeah. a lift and you'll feel a lower. Um, pregnant women, they don't have the luxury of that because usually they can't reach. <laughs> by this stage so that's why we use things like the pilates ball the fit ball or something that's going to provide that um responsive feedback yes and then we can start to train that pushing breath so as i said and and from assessment i'd say that statistically i i find about a third of women who co-contract who are actually tensing when they should ideally be relaxing a third of women who are getting a really good lengthening of the perineum with that pushing breath and a third who kind of it's not a very effective pushing breath. Mm. And and what about the other third? Uh, that's three. Sorry, I thought you said two. Sorry, a third are getting a good lengthening and then a third are not having an effective. A third are getting a good lengthening. A third aren't changing. It's just staying ah, still. Okay. And a third are actually tensing. Interesting. And can I double check? These women that are tensing with this breath, they're not under that impression that they're intensing. They feel like they're pushing, like as if they're even going to do a number two, which you shouldn't obviously push doing a number two, but they feel like that's what yeah, they're doing. That's what they're aiming to do and that's what their brain thinks they're doing and that's what they feel like they're doing and they are doing that from the diaphragm perspective. Yeah. But that's not what's happening with the pelvic floor. Fascinating. And it's actually quite common. It's called um, dyssynergic defecation and it's quite a common cause of constipation and um, we know from that body of research that there is quite a few women who when they go to empty their bowels and they try and relax the pelvic floor they're actually contracting it so Mm. you know it's it's retraining that response but ideally I think in an ideal world we do go through this usually in the third trimester when I see a client will go through perineal massage and we'll do an assessment of her ability to push and even just give a, a few ways to practice a few different types of pushing breath. Mm-hmm. And ideally in the birth space, if she is laboring nicely on her own, if she's in that reptilian brain and she's not, um, she's listening to her intuition, her body is guiding her and she is naturally doing you know, a really beautiful roaring low tone sound breath, which mm-hmm. is effectively, you know, pushing the diaphragm down, the uterus is contracting, she's got the fetal ejection reflex and everything's contracting and moving down. And that is like the ideal case. Mm-hmm. But there are, are some circumstances where, you know, baby's heart rate might start dropping and then the midwives start to encourage more of a, an active pushing style and, and it's knowing that women can do that effectively because mm. some women have never been constipated and some women have no idea how to actually effectively push. Mm. And when we do these exams, I can, I can see that, that some people do have a really good understanding of how to actually effectively push using the diaphragm and other people don't. And I don't know if from your experience as a midwife whether you see that as well in the birth room when there is ever coached pushing. That they don't know how. Uh, it's a lot of the time mamas are coached with an epidural. So that's like a whole other ball game of yeah. difficulty in finding that pelvic floor and figuring out how to contract it. But even, yeah, I would guarantee that. But it's really hard because when we're coaching to push, um, 
which as a disclaimer, I don't do, but it does get done a lot. Mamas are often on their back with the knees wide um, and rounding their spine, which is the exact opposite shape we want the pelvis to be in to create space in the outlet so that babe can move out of that final plane of the pelvis. So it'd be hard for me to be able to recognize if it's because of that co-contraction or if it's because you know, everything's pushing down except we're closing the gate at the bottom of the pelvis, not giving babes enough. big old noggin enough space to get through. Yeah. So that's a bit tricky. And I dare say that like birth, it is complicated and it's not yes. a straight like one. It's it's not – I think pelvic floor physios can be very sort of narrowed in on thinking that the pelvic floor is just the, the only thing that's affecting it when there's so many co- things that could be affecting baby's ease of moving mm. down through that pelvis. Mm-hmm. And it could even be, you know, the fact that baby's head is not um, – it's like looking up or deflexed mm-hmm. or it's aced, like to the side or mm-hmm. um, their hands there. There's just a million other things that could be contributing to a longer second stage. So I don't think it's – that's the only reason. Um, but what we know is that there is a correlation – Mm-hmm. Um, associated with a longer pushing phase and this ability not to be able to kind of effectively relax the pelvic floor and effectively use a pushing breath. So yes. I don't think there's any harm in, in teaching women how to use a, a good um, kind of birth breath that is an open glottis breath where we're encouraging that low tone sound and there is air coming out so that there's still plenty of oxygen getting to baby and we're not doing a breath hold. Mm. And then also just making sure that she can effectively do one with a breath hold in in the instance that she is, you know, um, being coached to push um, or in the instance where she's had an epidural. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I 100% back that, that, you know, whether it be the reason for all long second stages, but it would be definitely be a huge reason for a, a, a vast amount of the long second stages is that whole well, you, you can imagine um, if we think about what's stopping baby's head moving down and out through the pelvis, as you said, there's the bony landmarks. So mm-hmm. there's ideally we want to create space between the ischial tuberosities because if those bony landmarks are too close together and baby has a big head circumference, mm-hmm. then that's a physical block. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the other thing is the, the myofascial block of the pelvic floor. If the pelvic floor is not lengthening, not tightening, mm-hmm. um, not lengthening, or even if it's tightening mm-hmm. and we're trying to fit a, a baby's head out through there, then it's kind of, it's, you can imagine why it would sometimes slow down. Absolutely. Or even completely obstruct. Yep. Absolutely. Completely obstruct, like closing the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether it be bony or, or like ligamental, collective tissue muscle. Collective yeah, tissue muscle. It is. yeah, exactly. Like, it's just amazing. As you say, there's so many moving parts and we can do everything, pardon me, everything to prepare our pelvic floor, to know how to create space, to do everything you can to prepare for birth. And you can enter your birth knowing, okay, I'm confident, I'm excited, I've done absolutely everything I can to prepare. I surrender all control to everything else that happens and I accept what is. And we can't control what the baby does. <laughs> no, absolutely. And some things like, you know, there's bits and pieces that we do know for sure and we do the best with the research that we have, but there's so much about birth that we don't know. That we don't know mm-hmm. And we're just having to do the best with, with what we've got. I am intrigued. Let me know if you don't want to talk about it. How can we predict risk factors to whether you're going to be able to birth vaginally? 
Yeah, so it's it's similar. As I said, we from the research, they're looking a lot more at 3D and 4D and even 2D ultrasound scans where mm. if you imagine if a woman is under obstetric care and they're doing regular ultrasounds and they've got the ultrasound machine there and they could assess um, an estimate for head circumference and mm-hmm. for fetal weight and they could assess what like either with just that length measurement of GH plus VB, which is that perineal body and the mm. um, genital hiatus, um, or with actually an ultrasound scan, that levator hiatus. And if they're like, if genetically, for instance, um, Asian women tend to have a smaller mm-hmm. hiatus. So if an Asian woman was to have a really, um, estimate big uh, a baby with a really big head mm-hmm. circumference then her risk would be higher of obstructed labor mm-hmm. or of potentially um a levator avulsion which is where, where the pelvic floor partially tears mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely but uh, unfortunately we don't we still are not accurate at predicting no the fetal weight or fetal circumference. So when we're doing that and a, a, like a, an analysis of that compared to the pelvic floor's ability to stretch uh, and the pelvic floor, like the area of the pelvic floor, mm. we're making guesses upon guesses. Mm. Um so we can still provide women with that information and say this is what we know so far from the research and then let them make a decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I was thinking about it after our conversation the other day. Say if a mum is going for a VBAC or, or contemplating going for a VBAC, there are times where she is just dead set. I just absolutely do not want to go through another you know, labor for X amount of hours and end in an emergency cesarean section. They w- would just much, much, much rather an elective Caesar than, than for that. And I was kind of thinking in those circumstances, um, doing, you know, potentially that test and seeing a woman's health physio to get their opinion on their risk or not may be quite beneficial because yeah. really, you know, um, you know, even a 50% risk, they're kind of like, I'm not willing to take that risk and, and then that's okay. What was that test called again that you mentioned? Which one? The one where you test the risk of having to have a cesarean section and they considered a bunch of things and you showed me on your laptop. Uh, that's that's risk factor for pelvic floor dysfunctional prolapse. Yeah, it's called yeah. your choice. Your choice, that's birth right. Birth preferences, yeah. Um, birth yeah. choices, yeah. So that looks at family history, it looks at the estimated fetal weight, circumference, head circumference, um, current mm. like pregnancy symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I think in the case of a VBAC, it could be worthwhile discussing with the pelvic floor to work out was the point where there was failure to progress during the dilation phase or was it during the pushing yes. phase or like when in labour did the cesarean occur? Mm-hmm. And was is there any potential that the pelvic floor was an impact? Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. I think that's interesting. And then there's some some mummers that go for a VBAC and they're kind of like, 
I just really want to give it my best shot. And they're not like even, they didn't even consider not going for a VBAC. And I do think in those circumstances and definitely a first time mama or someone who has vaginally birthed before, I kind of don't feel in my opinion that it should necessarily be told to them or discussed. Um, by the way, you've got a low risk for being able to vaginally birth like completely out of the blue when the mum's not phased about it. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Mm. Interesting, mm. interesting. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, I just think like in general at some stage in the life of a woman, <laughs> it's helpful to see a pelvic floor physio to know where you're at and just to a bit more deeply understand this muscle mm-hmm. to understand the impact of it with our breath and our respiratory diaphragm and also the impact of like how to have a healthy pelvic floor. We, we look so much in sort of the fitness and wellness industry at our diet. We look at our gym routine or whether we're exercising, but for women, you know, hormonal health and pelvic health is an important part of the picture that can impact our ability to, you know, empty our bowels regularly, it can impact our sex lives, it can impact um, even, you know, urinary incontinence, all of these things. And Mm. so we want to know how as women can we keep our pelvic floor healthy long term? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. And something that I realised as well through you is that quite often it's like, you know, maybe one or two appointments and you just give them really solid exercises and it's kind of a matter of that. Yeah. Especially if it's a more basic like scenario. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If it's more just, um, you know, there's no complications, there's no, you know, birth injury, then mm. it could be a matter of just one or two or even, yeah, one or two consults mm-hmm. and just teaching the exercises and then thinking about how can you implement them into your fitness or wellness routine long-term. So could mm-hmm. you integrate them with, two exercises that you always tend to do in the gym or at a yoga class or a Pilates class so that just long term all the way up until you hit menopause and beyond you are integrating some form of pelvic health uh, exercise into your routine and can you have an awareness of how your breath is constantly affecting your pelvic floor absolutely what's your pelvic health routine for you um so the exercises that I like to integrate it with is like a bicep curl doing what I call a pelvic floor elevator so contracting on the on the elevation phase and then fully relaxing on the um kind of lowering phase of the bicep curl yeah so if I'm ever doing bicep curls in Pilates or gym then I I often integrate that exercise yeah um Bridges is when I like to do pelvic floor holds. So like if I'm doing a bridge in yoga or Pilates, then just engaging and holding in that position. Mm. And then, um, yeah, like the quick ones, just doing them occasionally in the car. Mm -hmm. Or usually, I mean, it's easy in my profession because I'm constantly teaching other women to do it. So I'm just doing it when I'm doing it at the same time as them. But um, I think the biggest thing is just I'm really, really conscious of how my breath throughout the day can impact my pelvic floor health. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Oh, so amazing. Thank you so much for jumping on our party, Caitlin. No worries. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share this with other pregnant women or other women that you think deserve to understand this information. It is my mission to share this knowledge with women because this is something that I believe that we should all be taught. 